0: We're just going to read Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city and a visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. He issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles... Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened.
1: On this Easter morning, we have the privilege of looking at one of the most sublime words in all Holy Writ. Some may regard this very verse as the high watermark of the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I say it contains perhaps the most sublime statement in all Holy Writ for this reason. It puts in just a few words, in bold relief, the profoundest principles that underlie God's dealings with us. I look over the Bible for what I would call sublime texts. I think of that verse that pops up in the middle of the book of Lamentations. Your mercies are renewed every morning. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Great is your faithfulness. I think of those words in Romans chapter 8 when Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? I think of the words of Paul, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And yet, I could go on and on with great verses in Scripture And yet this verse that we look at today, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, embodies all of these verses. God might have finished off Jonah once he headed for Tarshish. He could have dropped him right there. But he didn't. God did not have to send the wind Once Jonah headed for Tarshish, but he did. And then once Jonah fell asleep below deck, God did not have to overrule the sailors' casting of lots, but he did. God did not have to let a big fish swallow Jonah, but he did. God did not have to cause the fish to eject Jonah but he did. And the word of the Lord did not have to come to Jonah a second time, but it did. And on this Easter, God has singled out somebody here. You haven't heard him speak for so long, but today he's going to speak and you're going to hear his voice And you're going to realize there is hope after all, and there was a strategy that what God allowed was with a definite purpose in mind. Now in the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed like he had never prayed in his life. John Wesley used to say that God does nothing but in answer to prayer. And so I'm asking you, how much are you praying? And what kind of praying? Well, for one thing, Jonah was praying for the very thing that he didn't want to do at one time, and now he wanted to do it more than anything in the world. God has a way of narrowing all of our desires down to one. We say, I never thought I'd want this so much, but now it means everything to me. No doubt he prayed like Isaiah, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and come down. I know one thing. Jonah was now willing to do anything. And I know also that he knew God did not have to do anything. And until we're brought to the place that we recognize that God is sovereign, there's no such thing as snapping your finger and expecting God to jump, and Jonah knew that. Jonah never forgot that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And so Jonah prayed. Well, merely being spit out of the big fish wouldn't solve his longings now because he had a taste of being used of the Lord and the thought of never being used again was too much to cope with am I speaking to someone today you can recall when God used you but something happened and you say I'm finished now God can never use me again and I can tell you this is the way Peter felt it looked as though Three years of spoon-fed training by Jesus had come to nothing when Peter denied knowing Jesus at a crucial moment, and he sobbed his heart out when he realized what he had done. He would have done anything to turn things back. I think of the words of John Newton's hymn, In Evil Long I Took Delight. Where you find that line, where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. And perhaps you know that what you did was so wrong and it brought disgrace upon the name of the Lord. And you're convinced God can never use you again. But the sweetest word Jonah ever heard was, the worst word he once heard. Because when God said, Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, that was the worst thing he could hear. Can you imagine an Israeli Jew today who is God fearing being told to go to Baghdad and preach the word of the Lord? This is the way Jonah felt the thought of having to go to Nineveh. But he thought, if God will give me another chance. And the sweetest words he ever heard were these The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim, preach to it the message I give you. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, the angels gave a word, go tell the disciples that Jesus has been raised from the dead and tell Peter, singled him out. And the Lord is saying to somebody on this Easter day, you, and he calls you by name, it's not over. He hasn't finished with you yet. There is a work for you to do and it could be the greatest work that you ever will do is just around the corner. Would it surprise you to learn that some of God's best servants have been used after committing some foolish mistakes? There are a lot to be found in biographies of the great saints, and there is a lot that you will never know until you get to heaven. To think that God can use people who make the angels blush, because God is like that. Running from God should disqualify anybody, but the Lord came a second time. I remember once when I felt so unworthy, and I came across John Newton's hymn. I don't know why it has never uh, taken off in Britain. We know many of John Newton's hymns, uh, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, Ah, Glorious things of Thee are spoken, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. But listen to the words of this one. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned that guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins, his blood had spilt, and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mayest live." He is the God of the second look. A God who gives the second chance. And guess what God always does? Do you know He always comes a second time? Read again about Abraham. The Lord came a second time. God came a second time to Solomon. God came a second time to Elijah. The whole plan of redemption is a story of God coming the second time. I remember years ago when I was a student at Trevecca Nazarene College in Nashville, Tennessee, and the preacher came and he said, Doug, students, don't miss God's first best for you. I never felt so awful in all my life. I thought, well, it's too late for me. I've already missed his first best. And I went to my room and prayed, and I said, well, God, it's too late. I'm so sorry. All it did is made me feel bad. I missed God's first best. Then one day, the Lord showed me something. You know, we all miss his first best. In fact, do you know when God's first best was offered? It was in the Garden of Eden... When the Lord said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the word issued. And yet, Adam and Eve sinned. And so the Lord came a second time. The first messianic promise in the Bible is Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So this was second best, but this was what God had in mind all along. Because Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the fall of man did not take God by surprise. And all that we've done that has grieved the Holy Spirit, and all that has happened that we are so ashamed of, It was in God's computer. He sees the end from the beginning. And it was part of his strategy to work through things, to refine us, so that our finest hour might appear when we've been prepared. And so the first best would be when you have never sinned. Somebody wrote a silly book, If Adam Had Never Sinned. All we know is He did. And somebody may say to you, if you had never sinned, but you did, so what do you do now? Well, I can tell you, we've all blown it. We all have skeletons in the cupboard. But thank God, He's the God of the second look. And He comes a second time. And by the way, whatever second best is, it's good enough. And when He comes the second time, It's soon enough because God is never too late. He's never too early. He's always just on time and has a way of making everything in the past turn out for good in such a way that you're tempted to say, well, that's the way it was supposed to be. Don't make that mistake. Jonah didn't make that mistake. He wanted you to know it wasn't worth it. And yet... All's well that ends well. God can make everything work together for good. How good is good? Well, I know one thing. When God created the heavens and the earth and the animals, He looked over His unfallen creation and said, it's good, good. And then when the Apostle Paul says, All things work together for good. You ask, how good is good? Well, if God can make it work together for good and use the same word He used to describe unfallen creation, good, then good is good enough. He comes a second time to say, we move from here. I want us to see three things. The first, Jonah's orders. And so the Lord came to him, The word did, a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Lo and behold, the message remained the same. Jonah, verse 1 of chapter 1, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah might have thought, well, God only uh, was testing me. He's surely not going to have the same message. He's going to say, Well, now look, since I know you were willing to do that, it's okay. But that's not the way it was. When he came the second time, it was the same message. He meant what he said the first time Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. You may have thought that God changed his mind over a period of time. You got off the rails, you come back to him. And you think well this time i won't have to do what he told me the first time sorry about that the message is the same don't count on god changing his mind what he wanted when he said go he still wants what he asked he still wants the word is the same and god's orders to the church remain the same jesus christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The message of Jude was earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. It's the same message. All Scripture is God-breathed. Nothing has changed. Never think that we outgrow what was in Scripture, that man has come of age, and now we can move on. Wrong! The message is the same. I'll tell you something interesting about church history. When God turns up in great power with unusual servants, or sometimes low-profile servants, the message is the same. There's a common denominator that goes right through church history. Athanasius, St. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley, Spurgeon. You find when God turns up again, same message. And You can be sure that if God were to turn up in our day, it would be a restoration not only of apostolic power, but of apostolic teaching. And we'll be right back to the Scriptures. We'll realize that God meant it the first time. He hasn't changed His mind. And if God comes in power... In our generation I guarantee you it will be the same old message and I'll tell you another thing it's kind of funny not only the same message but the same method does it surprise you the Bible says God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe go to the great city of Nineveh and preach and so Go to the great city and preach, proclaim to you the message I give you. And so it's the same message. And I think I sense on both sides of the Atlantic a creeping in of anything but preaching to hold people's attention. And there are churches that don't even want a preacher. I remember hearing it maybe an apocalypse. Apocalyptic story about a church in America that called this preacher who uh, really wasn't much of a preacher. In fact, he only had one sermon. He preached it every Sunday for the whole year, but recall time came. And uh, he said to himself, and he said to his wife, "Well, I know uh, we won't be called back." This fellow he couldn't preach his way through a wet paper bag. And he knew he was finished. Do you know he got a unanimous recall? Well, he tried to do better the second year, but he only had one sermon. And he preached it every week. This time he said to his wife, recall time is coming up. We might as well pack our bags. It's all over. Lo and behold, unanimous recall. Well, he did try the third year, but he wasn't a preacher. It was the same old message. This time, they actually started packing. Would you believe he got a, another unanimous recall? And he finally got the courage to call in uh, the head uh, deacon and said, look, you know and I know that I can't preach. And yet you keep giving me a unanimous recalls. Do you mind telling me why? The deacon answered, it's very simple. We never wanted a preacher in the first place. (laughs) It's often the case. There needs to be a restoration of preaching. This is what the Reformation did. Same message, same method, Jonah's orders. Second, Jonah's obedience. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh Jonah was given a second chance but notice he was not given a choice of what to preach notice how it is put go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you one reason preaching is so weak today is that people try to be clever or creative. They think they can upstage Scripture. They can outdo God's Word. And so they look for cleverness. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, there is one thing and one thing alone that will make preaching great. And that is when the preacher preaches what God told him to preach. And without any fear or favor of what people think and let it fall and not try to be original, creative or clever with words. The Apostle Paul said our gospel came in power not with wisdom of words. And you need to know that the pulpit is not the minister's private platform to get over his own personal views. God has told us what to preach and will not own anything else. So, how interesting. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. What that probably means is it would take three days to get through the whole area. And so, Jonah started into the city, and proclaimed the message. Now, I would have thought that by this time it's going to be a pretty important word. I'll be very interested to know what it is that God once preached in Nineveh, gone, going to such pains to send the wind, send the fish, and then the fish ejects Jonah, and then the Lord comes the second time. We're going to expect one powerful word. One expects something heavy, perhaps closely reasoned, profound. And don't forget, Jonah did not emerge from Oxford or Cambridge. You know the saying, you can always tell an Oxford man, but you can't tell him much. And Jonah does not have the word that you might expect to be preached from a high pulpit, here came the word from the belly of the fish. And would you believe it? It's only eight words in the English translation, in the NIV, eight words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. Jonah might have said, well, look, Lord, you, surely you've got to give me more than that. they're going to laugh at me. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to grip them. I go into Nineveh. That's the best you can do after all that I've been through. But this was a time when less is more. Few words, and God did the rest. It's amazing how something you think is going to be so great when you look at it. Some years ago, well, it's been a lot of years ago, when we first moved to uh, uh, Britain and we went to Europe. Th- we have two children uh, Robert Tillman II, we call him TR for some reason, and our daughter Melissa is Missy. And uh, we went uh, to the Louvre in uh, uh, Paris and, and we had to wait in long queues. And TR kept saying, Daddy, why are we doing this? I said, TR. This is going to be a moment you will never forget because you're going to see the most famous painting in the whole world. It's called the Mona Lisa. And he said, I want to go to McDonald's. I said, no, you wait. It seemed an eternity, but our time finally came. And there, we had to stand about four or five feet away I said, T.R., that's it. He said, Daddy, that's the ugliest woman I ever saw in my (laughs) life. I want to go to McDonald's. (laughs) Remember seeing a, a sermon by George Whitefield. George Whitefield is one of my heroes. And I remember thinking, I want to see what's in this sermon. And I thought, well, th- th- I don't get it. There's nothing in this sermon. Uh, and then somebody gave me a book of Whitfield's sermons. I don't know if you realize who Whitfield was. In in the 18th century, there were two towering figures in England John Wesley and George Whitfield. They, with Charles Wesley, formed what was called the Holy Club in Oxford. And because of their methodical way of doing things, uh, they were nicknamed Methodists. And that's how the Methodist Church got its name. Well, George Whitfield was mightily used of God and preached with unusual power. And people would often fall to the ground The word they used in those days, swooning. Today we'd say slain in the spirit or you fall. There they called it swooning. They just couldn't stand up under Whitfield's preaching. And so I wanted to uh, know more about that. And so I got a book of Whitfield's sermons, and I read the first one. I thought, well, there's nothing here. I kept reading. Let's try the second one. This is... Simple stuff. This is A, B, C. We'll go to the third one. I went right through the book. I thought, how on earth could God use that kind of preaching? We come now to the third thing. Jonah's orders, Jonah's obedience, God's overruling. And look at it in verse 5. Jonah had preached 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites... Believed God you would expect it to read the Ninevites believed Jonah but what happened was God got into the picture and they didn't even see Jonah the spirit came in and so shaken were they by the word it didn't cross their minds that this was a word from Jonah the Ninevites believed God so it was when these mighty men of old preached like George Whitfield, you had to be there. The story is told of a, of a couple who came from America to England just to hear George Whitfield preach. They told the story. They landed at Southampton. They were so glad to, to make the trip. They went through three terrible storms across the Atlantic, and they were so afraid that they would never make it. it said at one time they just were sure they were going to die. But they came into Southampton, and it was on a Saturday. They inquired, "Would George Whitfield be preaching in his tabernacle in Tottenham Court Road?" And the word was, "Yes, he will be there." Tired though they were from the journey, they made their way to London. And on the next day, they came to the church. And they were so tired, they thought, it's not going to do us any good. And and when Whitfield stood up to preach, they thought, well, he's tired too, because it didn't seem like he had anything to say. He just kind of rambled when suddenly something happened. It was electrifying, they said. The Spirit of God came down with such power that they said they would have crossed ten seas, to be there at that moment. And when the sermon was over, they were physically refreshed from the journey as though they hadn't even traveled. Somebody came up to Whitfield and said, Can I print that sermon you just preached? And Whitfield said, Yes, if you can get in, the thunder and the lightning. <laughs> and you read these sermons. We remember meeting a man from Singapore a few years ago who had been converted under the preaching of John Soong. I had never heard of him. And he just wanted to keep talking about John Soong, S-U-N-G. And he said it was marvelous. He said, I was a small boy, and I will never forget what it was like. I said, do you have any sermons of John Soong? He said, yes, I'll get you a book of sermons. And I read them, and it was just like reading Whitfield's sermons. They, there was nothing there. I thought, what on earth? How could anybody use that? But you had to be there. And you read this sermon of Jonah. Forty more days and Nineveh will be under, overturned. And we just say, well, let's go on. What else did he have to say? It's got to be more than that. But you see, it is what happens when the Word and the Spirit come together. I happen to be of the view that there has been a silent divorce in the church, speaking generally between the Word and the Spirit. Now, When there's a divorce, sometimes the children stay with the father. Sometimes the children stay with the mother. And in this divorce, you have those that are on what I can only call the word side. And you have those that are on what I would call the spirit side. Now, what's the difference? Well, take those of us uh, who represent the word. What are we saying? Well, the need of the hour is to contend for the faith once delivered under the saints. We need to get back to expository preaching. We need to understand our doctrine. We need to rediscover the God of the Reformation. And we need to teach our people justification by faith, sovereignty of God, so that we know our Bibles. Now, what's wrong with that message? Absolutely nothing. It's exactly right. We'll take those that are on the spirit side. What is their word? Well, it's this. The honor of God's name will not be restored until we see a revival of what happened in the book of Acts. When there was such power, when they had a prayer meeting, the place was shaken. When Peter walked, they just wanted to be in his shadow for people to be healed. What is needed? Signs, wonders, miracles what is needed, a demonstration of the gifts of the Spirit, what is needed for power, and then the honor of God's name will be restored. But until that happens, the world would take no notice of the church. What is wrong with that message? Absolutely nothing. It's exactly right. What is needed more than anything else as I speak, when it is a situation, it's not one or the other, but it is both These two things coming together, and it is my view that this simultaneous combination will result in spontaneous combustion. When the man speaks, God is heard. Jonah speaks, they believe God. That is the need of the hour. That is what happened then. God's overruling. Nothing clever, nothing profound about Jonah's message. One July day in 1801, in a place called Cane Ridge in Kentucky. It's been called America's Second Great Awakening. A Methodist lay preacher stood on the top of a fallen tree. People had come from various states in their covered wagons, It was the beginning of the phenomenon called camp meetings. This Methodist lay preacher took his text. From 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things done in the body. 15,000 people stood as he spoke. During his sermon, something happened. The Spirit of God came down on the people. There was no less than 500 people flat out on the ground. For the next six days, again and again, people would just fall. Sometimes they lay there for hours. And in some cases, they thought they were dead. They would even feel the pulse and only feel very few beats. But they left him. And they came to life with such power and assurance of salvation that after four days, during which time hundreds, not the same ones, had been slain. Witnesses said it was like the sound of Niagara. You could hear them a mile away. So great was the praise of God on the people. Word and spirit coming together. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. In fact, the success was so great that the word reached the king. Verse 6 The king of Nineveh rose from his throne and he took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone... Call urgently on God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our leaders would talk like that? Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them get up, give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Success so great started out with grassroots people. So stirred, the word reached the king. The king issued the proclamation. In my little book, Thanking God, that will be out sometime this year, I've got a chapter on a grateful nation and show what happened when a nation fasted and prayed. When do you suppose is the last time this nation had a day of prayer and fasting? It was back in World War II. And the amazing things that happened within hours of a nation calling on God. During my 25 years at Westminster Chapel, from time to time I would write a letter to the Prime Minister when there was a crisis in the nation and say, have you thought of having a day of prayer? And I'd get some... Let her back to say well the situation does not call for that thank you very much someone said try writing Her Majesty the Queen I did the reply was well it's not up to us to decide this sort of thing I ask what will it take before a nation finally says there's nothing else to do and we cry out with the king who knows maybe God will step in I am amazed at wisdom like this. Who knows? The problem is, we all think we know everything. We all think we've got to give the right answer and know what to say. The wisdom of the king of Nineveh, who knows? People come up to me and say, do you think it was right to go to war? I answer, who knows? People come up to me and say, are you a premillennialist? You believe Jesus will come before the millennium? Are you a post-millennialist? Do you think he will come after the millennium? Or do you take the thousand years to mean symbolic that there's no millennium? Are you pre, post, or ah? I say, who knows? I'm a pan-millennialist. I believe everything will pan out all right in the end. One thing we know is revival came to Nineveh. It is my prayer that God will send revival to Britain. It's all I wanted during my time over here. and Nothing would thrill me more than to hear on the other side of the Atlantic I get a phone call. Guess what has just happened. It will come when the church returns to the faith once delivered unto the saints. And when the message is overruled, when God steps in and owns the message, and it becomes so simple that anybody can understand it. I close. The Lord has an amazing way of turning up. John, Jonathan Edwards taught us that the task of every generation is to discover in which direction the Sovereign Redeemer is moving. Then move in that direction. And the way I believe the Lord is moving today, on this Easter morning, He's addressing someone in this crowd at a time when the whole nation needs to be awakened. He just comes to you. You think, well, why me? I'm just one person. There's so many more people around. Such urgent needs exist. Why me? And you think of all people, I have let the Lord down. Why me? But the message of the angels, go tell the disciples and Peter. And God says it to you today. The best is yet to come. He's not finished with you yet. That's the Easter message. May we pray. Heavenly Father, you know every person here, every heart, the one longing to hear you speak one more time. Lord Jesus. Let that one know, you're there, but the message hasn't changed. May we respond to it. Hasten the day when the Word and the Spirit come together and the nation is never the same again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.